You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. This episode of Uprise Radio was made in June 2020 on the lands of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge this land was never ceded. We live and work on stolen land and stand in solidarity with all those resisting the settler colonial project. Mississippi. Good afternoon. You're listening to Uprise Radio. My name is Jackson. I'm here with James. How are you, James? I'm pretty good, Jackson. And thank you to everyone for tuning in again. I hope everyone's doing well. I mean, you can't not be doing well when the big orange monster is in hospital, hopefully dying of uh, of, of COVID night of that of that Chinese hoax. You know, I hope, I hope that Chinese hoax is killing him. I really do. And I uh, I don't know why people are now you know being like, oh no. We've got to wish him well. You know, who, need, who needs to wish this guy well? He's a, he's, he's a cretin. He's a creep. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers, yeah. Well, I guess they mean nothing, thoughts and prayers, as we know. Like, it doesn't help people get out of a bushfire. It doesn't help people get out of economic hardship. So, yeah, thoughts and prayers for, um, for Donald Trump. Thoughts and prayers, buddy. I, I do think there's an element of me that goes, just don't believe anything he says, even something like, I'm sick with my wife in hospital. I, I think that there, there is a chance it could be part of some conniving street smart plan from this guy because I think people kind of sometimes underestimate his rat cunning for for survival and the other real shame is you know like Boris Johnson you know even though these leaders might not adequately fund public health might be ardently against adequately funding public health of course they're going to get the best possible health care and that is that is the sad reality that he will probably survive this which is which is a crying shame there are too many people that would need to keep up that live in order for it to uh, to not make it out into the public. Because, you know, when there are injustices and there's usually somebody who stops and says, I don't think this is okay, and usually becomes, you know, a whistleblower. And I guess that leads us into what we're going to be talking about today in one aspect. We're going to be talking about two documentaries that are available on Netflix. One is The Great Hack, which talks about whistleblower, particularly Christopher Wiley, in the role that Cambridge Analytica has played in harming democracy. Mm. And also The Social Dilemma, which goes into some of the more insidious parts of many of the social media platforms that we all spend probably way too much time, particularly in lockdown on at the moment. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like each documentary kind of plays a separate role in this space. So they're both looking at the the threat that social media has to both human autonomy and democracy. And it, and it is really topical right now with the election coming up, considering the impact that 
these new technologies, uh, these mass, you know, that's been referred to as surveillance capitalism, this, this selling of people's online behaviour and inferring predictions about what they will do next based on that behaviour, which they then sell to advertisers. And I think the social dilemma does a really good job of, because of, some people might say, you know, you know what, I like targeted ads. I like getting ads that, that know where I'm planning to go on holidays or know what type of shoes I like. But I think, I think it does a really good job of, of showing you how dangerous that technology is. Technology that can, uh, you know, figure out what you're planning to do next, figure out where you are, figure out what your interests are, store it, and then be able to give that information to advertisers who could include political organisations that have aims in terms of what they would like you to do. And what it does is it, is it highlights this relationship between knowing a lot about, about someone and knowing what little emotional trigger points are going to push them towards a certain behaviour, whether that's a purchase or perhaps more insistently, whether it's getting involved in a political cause or getting uninvolved in a political cause that you may have previously been passionate about. And then the great hack really looks at specific instances like Brexit, like Trump 2016, and like some incredible stories from the developing world where this technology has been deployed uh, to, to, to gain certain outcomes. So I've got to say that both the films, they're really interesting, but they're also deeply disturbing. And, and, and they left me feeling a bit despondent for a few days. But then since then, I've been thinking of ways to, to fight the impact that these technologies and, and these companies are having on our lives and our communities. And what were your kind of takeaways from the films when you first watched them, James? Yeah, I think with The Social Dilemma, I found it mostly quite difficult to watch. Most people know the kind of way that in some way, I guess this is one, one thing where talking about somebody's social media profile and that it had these characters that are kind of behind the profile that are getting the person to interact with their phone, suggesting ads and all these kind of things. And we know that we can see it. We can see it play out while we're looking at our device. But I think what, what was quite disturbing with that is that a lot of the, the people on that are people that have played quite leading roles within you know, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, all of these companies, they, they outline the kind of really disturbing aspects and things around body image and the way that people interact with people, the increase in suicide, particularly for young girls, these kind of things where it has a really direct impact. We might feel, oh, I shouldn't have bought that or I don't want to spend so much time on, on here. But that's quite different to having a direct impact on suicide, mental health and things like that. But those people seem to, they outlined the problem for it, talked about how they don't let their kids use it. And yet they seem to have really no moral fiber about what they've done wrong or what can be done to change it. That's, that's what I felt from Social Dilemma. And, and I guess, like you said, it, it really lacks a lot of the political understanding of how these things can be manipulated and used. And I guess that's why we thought it was interesting to look at it with the other documentary, The Great Hack, which really outlines a direct threat to all democracies, all different forms of democracies across the world. Yeah, like the mental health impacts are widely discussed in Australia, but the political impacts are incredible to the point where learned people, much more learned than me, one of the more interesting people in the Social Dilemma is a woman called Shoshana Zuboff, Professor Shoshana Zuboff. She wrote a book last year called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And she's now being called the Karl Marx of the 21st century, which is not a bad rap. 
really. Uh, I, I thought I'd play a little grab from her kind of describing the product that Facebook now sells to its advertisers. And I think it's really important to remember that those advertisers increasingly are political parties and social change groups. But let's just uh, have a little listen. This is what every business has always dreamt of to have a guarantee that if it places an ad, it will be successful. That's their business. They sell certainty. In order to be successful in that business, you have to have great predictions. Great predictions begin with one imperative. You need a lot of data. This is a new kind of marketplace now. It's a marketplace that never existed before. And it's a marketplace that trades exclusively in human futures. Just like there are markets that trade in pork belly futures or oil futures, we now have markets that trade in human futures at scale. So just to expand on that a little, one of the early experiments of Cambridge Analytica, who are a company that works with Facebook data, the data that they collected with Facebook, the way that they collected it was by using those, find out your personality type in 15 questions. You know, where they'd ask people about the type of people they are and they would willingly give that information over. But when they did that survey, they also got access to all of their photos, all of their posts, all of their friends, all of their browsing history, because Facebook is actually monitoring what you're doing on other tabs as well. So they said they had 5,000 individual data points on every voter in America. But they did this in other countries before they bought it into the US or the UK. One thing they did was in Trinidad and Tobago, where they ran a campaign where they knew that if they bombarded Facebook with memes around an idea of not voting in an upcoming election, that the country was largely split into two groups, uh, divided along socioeconomic grounds. And they knew that the lower socioeconomic group was more susceptible to apathy about the political process, and they could stymie their political movement. There was a massive drop in voter turnout and the, uh, you know, the, the more conservative, wealthier party won by a landslide, which was not what was predicted by the political pollsters because of the issues, the actual issues that were happening in the country at the time. But this ability to bombard specific people with specific messages pushed enough of the population towards this new area. So it's kind of like you're selling certainty. As you said, you're selling this guarantee that certain people, because you know so much about them, will react in certain ways to certain messages. It's like a return of bullet theory communications. So, you know, James, what, what do you think the impact of commodifying or even being able to predict human futures? Like, what, what does that make you think of? Like, people betting on possible human outcomes? The very nature of when people tell you that the psychology of this, of human, you know, studies will make this happen, it, it makes me, I guess, the rebel in me makes me just immediately go, that's not true. Because, you know, we have the innate ability to be able to think differently. You know, we see uh, things going along a certain pattern for a period of time. And then seemingly out of nowhere, a spark happens and things dramatically change. But I think, you know, what it does, and I think why, why Cambridge Analytica and these kind of things work so well, they don't work with progressive candidates by and large, is because it's about maintaining the status quo. It's about maintaining conservatism it's about saying we don't need change you know like you said it's about building apathy it's using divisive tactics it's all of those kind of things so it's quite insidious and I, and I, but i think the hope comes from the fact that 
we still want spontaneity. What are some of the things of have people being in lockdown? You know, economic impacts, mental health, all those kind of things. But I think one of the things that is really difficult for all of us is that we can't do things spontaneously. We can't just decide, well, hey, I'm going to go, Jackson, let's go to the pub tonight. And it's that kind of thing that exists within all of us that I think is kind of the the way of thinking about how this kind of stuff can be resisted. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make there because there is, and it, and it comes from the fact, and we've already touched on this, the majority of talking heads in both of these films, they come from the tech industry and they believe so deeply in the technology and the strength of the technology. So they're often kind of positing this David and Goliath struggle that David is never going to win because you've got this AI that is so dense and detailed and so well programmed that it, it, it's, it's functioning in a way that is beyond the, uh, human comprehension. I just want to play another little clip from uh, Shoshana Zuboff. And this is, this is it from a different talk, not, not from the film. It's a talk she gave in the UK late last year. And here she's describing the way these products actually work in Facebook's own, own word. I'll just have a listen to this. A leaked Facebook document in 2018 revealed what's going on in its AI hub. Facebook describing its own operation. We don't get that many glimpses into this. What did it say? Our AI ingests, I'm using their words, ingests trillions of data points every day. It trains millions of models, AI models, predictive models every week and is able to produce six million, six million predictions of human behavior per second, per second. That's what's going on in the factory. She makes this really interesting comparison, historical comparison, where she talks about this sociologist, Harriet Turbo, who in 1833, she said the problem with the aristocracy was they only had one word for everyone who wasn't an aristocrat. You know, one term, they called them the lower class. And similarly, Zuboff says now, the tech tycoons, they have just one word for the billions of people around the globe that, that, that are on their products. They call them users. And she says that the 19th century was this great struggle by the laborers, tradespeople, artisans, merchants, to recognize their collective social and political interests as the working classes, not the lower classes. And this same challenge now confronts billions of internet users over the world as we're trying to work to understand the political, economic and social forces that are at work on us through this surveillance capitalism. She identifies this as a really common experience that we're all having. So I wonder, how, how do we begin to fight something that we've just heard described like that? Something that's able to like come up with 6 billion predictions of how we're going to react to a certain emotional stimuli at, at any given time. Well, there, I mean, there's no real like easy answer. I don't think to any of, you know, that, that question at least. I mean, I think there are perhaps some answers about things around regulation and I think, you know, what is the picture that you paint of yourself online? I know for me, I mean, I know that some people, you know, this is not a, not a criticism at all, but for some people, they, they feel that, online is a place that they can share more of who they are and they put everything that they're doing online. Well, that's certainly not what I do. And I certainly, I don't perhaps share hundred percent every thought that I have on politics, even on this show, you know, they might have some differing views about how 
I think about what am I presenting in the words that I'm saying on this show? What am I presenting in the things, certainly much more tailored on social media? I could look at all different types of things throughout my web browsing and all of that. I don't think that necessarily paints who I am. And I think that people are just so much more complex than these data points. Sure, they can paint a picture of certain things, but they don't give the full picture. And I don't think people should be giving them the full picture of what it is. I mean, when those surveys came out, you know, I, and I'm sure you do as well, like lots of friends, particularly that are involved in data sort of activism and things are saying, please don't fill out these surveys. It's not as though people weren't warned about what to do. So some people do anyway. And I think one thing as well, it's not just, you mentioned, you know, it collects all the data and all your information from, say, if I filled it out, it collects all of mine, but also all of my friends as well. All of the, that, those things. Mm. I mean, I think that the, the best way that we need to be countering these kind of things is, is not online at all. It's on the streets, it's in protests, it's social movements. That's the counterpoint to demanding change. And I, I think that there's so much in the whole spectrum of this to say governments keep saying that it's too hard to regulate these things or it's too hard to because we don't know enough about it. And it, it's, it keeps coming back to this thing like we don't really know about the internet. It's really complicated. Well, you're not a scientist either, but you can make policies or you can make regulations that mean that you know, the water is safe or food Cloning. safety regulations. Cloning, genetic modification. Yeah. These are complicated things that are regulated all the time. I think you make a really good point about digital liter literacy as well. And, and one of the things that I did learn from these documentaries was that this technology that we're describing was originally developed as a military-grade telecommunications psyops model. You know, this is used in countries that, that are at war or, or where, you know, Western powers are at war to try and get those populations, those hostile populations to behave in different ways by bombarding them with messages that can push them in certain directions. So they're essentially training uh, telecommunications weapons onto civilian populations uh, back, back in the home country uh, by doing this. So I think it's really important to recognise that and then build your digital literacy. I think that the social dilemma is really good, particularly for young people, at showing them the ways that these apps insidiously become more and more parts of your life by sending you notifications when you haven't been on for a few hours or telling you mm. when someone that you are clearly interested in because you're looking at their post all the time tags you in a photo or tags any photo, just lets you know when, when they've written a post, someone you're interested in. So I think doing simple things, I totally agree with you that action should happen on the streets and in private homes and in conversations that aren't monitored. I think that's key. But also simple things, you know, like don't, don't use the the phone apps where you can't block ads, where you can't block unsolicited messages. Put an ad blocker on whatever browser you're using. Use incognito browsers, use a VPN. Take the necessary precautions, the same precautions you take when you pull your blinds or you lock your door. Like it's, it's, it's simple and I, I know I'm preaching the converted out there in the 3CR audience. But it, you know, these, these films, I think they did highlight for me the seriousness of, of, what, of what is at stake here because you know, if you listen to the experts, they will say that currently, without regulation, the regulation that Wiley, the whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica, is calling for, they're saying we, we cannot have a fair election in the West at the moment. And it's very interesting. You know, Scott Morrison keeps talking the big talk about regulating Facebook, regulating Google against fake news. He is using a company very similar to Cambridge Analytica, a company called Topher Guerin. They're out of New Zealand. And their whole model is bombarding boomers who have quite low uh, digital literacy, not to cast aspersions, but, but generally speaking, you know, people who didn't grow up 
in the social media age are, are less savvy with how to turn on, on and off certain things. And, and, and they use them widely, you know, in the last federal election that was, you know, apparently Labor's to lose and they lost terribly. And a big part of that was the, the online campaigns that um, Morrison was running. But Morrison doesn't want to regulate it in the way that Wiley's talking about it or the way that you and I might want to talk about it. Morrison is talking about getting to pay for media stories and for advertising. And this is a directive that is being pushed to him by Rupert Murdoch. And I think what is the difference between the way that, you know, they're collecting data in this way. And, you know, there are lots of these ways that, you know, both Cambridge Analytica and like you said, there are lots of similar companies that existed before and after Cambridge Analytica. Collecting data, you know, it's nothing new. Collecting polling information, collecting phone lists, emails, all that, that, that's all a part of data collection as well, whether it's done online or offline. So what's the difference between that and the way that it's been done in the past? Or, you know, you talk about this being a threat to democracy, but what's the, what's the difference between the way that Rupert Murdoch threatens our democracy or during the last federal election here, the way that Clive Palmer threatened democracy, he spent $86 million basically running fake candidates and having huge billboards and advertising all across the country where he had no intention of getting anyone elected. It was just so Labor wouldn't get elected so that he wouldn't cause, you know, he, he made a calculated risk that it was cheaper for him to spend $86 million than to have Labor elected because mm. they might put a tax on, on people like him. I think so, I mean, you know, yeah. there are really interesting things about the new, new technology and new media versus old, old media and old technology. And, you know, they're both a threat to democracy, I guess, is where it lies. Mm. I think you're, I think you're right. I think that the, the difference is that there is, there is currently just because of time and the amount of time that we've been exposed to these things, there's currently more media, traditional media literacy than there is digital media literacy. I don't think people really understand how target, I think there was, there was one really interesting comment in the doco by one of the early investors in Facebook, uh, Roger McNamee, who has now become kind of a mm -hmm. vocal critic of, of their business model. And he said that what is created on each person's newsfeed is their own hyper individuated version of reality. You know, because, because what is being presented to them as news, as objects of interest, as memes, as what is shared to them, because it is tailored to what's going to make them engaged with the business's goals, they have their own individual version of what is really happening. And it's, and it's leading to a really heightened sense of political polarisation and inability to listen to other sides of arguments and have rational debates. You know, I, th I think that has become heightened in in our lifetimes. I think, I think it's, it's really visible in a way that it hasn't been previously. So I think it's, I think it's just an overdrive. I think it's just a new technology mm. that we, we don't really know. I think we're starting to understand how it works and I, I think calls to regulate it are essential. But I think at the moment, it is a bit of the wild west, isn't it? Like there's so little regulation on, on how this stuff is, is consumed and, and used. And, and the, illusion, mm. the illusion that it's free these are free services that you're just using. There's a great line, you know, if you can't see the product that's being sold, you are the product. And that's the truth, you know, like it's, it's us, it's our beliefs, it's our actions, it's our um, understandings of the world that, it, that is up for grabs here. And there are... But again, I don't think that's anything new. I mean, if you look at 
um, what's that advertising program on the ABC that looks at the growing transfer? Yeah, look at the way that, you know, marketing impacts on, on people, how they manipulate, you know, we're going to put this at this time because we want to get mums to buy this product that they think mums will buy or put this on during the footy or whatever, you know, and that's insidious in itself, but it's no different. And I, I remember thinking when you were talking about examples before about people just getting a microcosm of their own kind of views of things and whatever. I remember a chaser um, segment on their show when John Howard was prime minister and they were interviewing people from in a shopping center in Western Sydney. And they were asking them about being concerned about boats coming and saying, yeah, I'm really concerned about, you know, boats of refugees coming, blah, 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 whatever. And they're just talking about this irrational fear of, of the ocean and boats. And these people are so far away from, you know, the reality of this happening that why is this a concern to you? You know, and the same way that, you know, Howard and Abbott and, and those ministers were able to manipulate the media, you know, Howard was great at using talkback radio and um, newspapers and things like that, manipulating mainstream traditional media to sell their message and to get certain people to believe that kind of thing. And I completely agree. I, I just think the difference right now is like the way that the Nazis were able to ha um, harness radio because it was a new technology and people weren't used to having that voice in their kitchen, speaking directly to them, confirming their worst fears, heightening their, their most base angers. I think right now this, this technology is, is at the same hyped up level where people don't have the, the literacy to, to read through the lies. Like for every person you know, that believes everything that they read in the Herald Sun. There's, there's people that believe nothing that they read in the Herald Sun. Meanwhile, I don't think there's the same level of digital literacy in the general community or even an understanding that this is happening on these platforms. I think they think it's a place where they, I think that's what's so insidious about it. I think it's a place where they go and look at photos of their friends and photos of their nieces and nephews and photos of their dogs and, you know, what's happening in the community garden. And then in the middle of that, there's psyops, highly orchestrated psychological operations like really targeted propaganda propaganda that is made just for them you know the herald sun is made for herald sun readers but this propaganda is made just for you by an ai that's tinkering with it all the time to, to to make it more and more effective like that is a new form of technology and we don't know how to deal with it and i like i, I hear what you're saying there's always been manipulation in media i just think that these films highlight the difference of this technology and why it is having the impact that it is because i i don't remember I mean, look, I mean, look at the States at the moment, places like a tinderbox, you know, and like maybe it was in the nineties when there was uh, race riots in LA, you know, maybe it got as close as, as it's getting right now to, I don't know, like maybe I'm, maybe I'm believing the own propaganda that's being fed to me online, but it, but it feels like, you know, the U S really could, you know, end up in a civil war in the next few years. And I think that, and I, these films and believably paint a connection between this technology and that level of public discord. Mm. I think, you know, what it, I think what it comes down to that what is laid the means for these kind of the people like Mark Zuckerberg, who felt the need to create these kind of programs, the way that they utilized, how they utilize the kind of space that they're taking up can really be come down to kind of the breakdown of, of sort of society as a way that, uh, Margaret Thatcher kind of termed things and what would I would say, you know, well, well, yes, the problem is capitalism, but you know, this kind of, but they don't say that. My, That's one of the big things no, missing but, from the film. Yeah. I, 
I think one of the main things is like how neoliberalism works. Yes, I mean, capitalism as a whole is a problem and created these problems for lots of moments in, in you know, for its entirety. But at this point of neoliberalism, which was deliberately designed to crush the idea of communal living and to crush, you know, which is what a society is, people living in society together, being able to help each other out in whatever form that is, but living in a way that, okay, well, you know, person next door to me, I don't agree with everything they say, but, you know, I help bring their mail in or whatever, feed their cat when they go on holidays or these kind of things that are small things that hold the fabrics of society together. These were systematically destroyed by people like Margaret Thatcher. They were destroyed in bigger ways about how workplaces work and destroying elements of like social democratic, you know, healthcare and education and all of these kind of things as well. But there are smaller parts of how we can interact with people, the conversations we can have, the rapport we can build, that we can have a conversation with people that we have disagreements with and maybe we can win them over to some different ideas, not necessarily who they vote for or whatever, but, you know, we can convince them that, you know, that, you know, that other person, they came here as well and you don't need to be racist, etc. You know, I think these are some of the big issues that are at play, I think, and, and what is kind of laid the groundwork for these things to exist because they're trying to create this other idea of society. And I think even in their kind of idealism, the way that some of these programmers talk about is that it's creating this utopian society online. Well, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a society in real life. And yeah, being, I want to go, it's not being a Luddite, not using technology, but that's not what I want to use it for. That we might have elements where we connect with people online and it's great to find out about things that are happening around the world and connect with like-minded people, but it doesn't, it's not a replacement for what we have or what we can have in society with human interaction. Yeah, I think that's a good place to finish. We're, we're way out of time. It's been a really interesting discussion. There's way more that could be said. I would recommend watching the films, but, um, you know, maybe also watching something funny immediately afterwards because they are depressing. But uh, I hope you enjoy Try not to touch your phone while they're on. Yeah, don't touch. Well, you might never touch your phone again. I certainly haven't. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.